0: Good afternoon and greetings from the Hill Country of Central Texas. I'm Amos Fox, your host of Revolution and Military Affairs. And today we're going to discuss Liddell Hart. Liddell Hart is often remembered primarily for his contributions to armored warfare in the period leading up to the Second World War, as well as his idea of the indirect approach, which many people conflate loosely with maneuver warfare. After the Second World War he's often also remembered for his contributions to rehabilitating many of the uh German generals' reputations in the period following the war. Uh his book The German Generals Speak is often considered one of those one of those contributions that helped uh bring the German generals in the post-war period out of uh what what may have been a period of of darkness for their careers and their memories and help shed them uh shed some light on them, good, bad, or indifferent. Uh, that's that's what many people uh, think about that. Think about that book and his contributions there. However, I'm gonna go back to the beginning, uh, to early, early Liddell Hart in the uh, post-World War One period, and examine a set of ideas uh, in greater detail that he set forth in his book called The Ghost of Napoleon. And The Ghost of Napoleon is, uh, in my opinion, one of the most revolutionary pieces of writing uh, in in, in the history of military thinking. And so for that reason, uh, since we are revolution in military affairs, I find this book quite revolutionary and I think we'll spend the next 30 minutes or so discussing it in great detail. Let's dive in and examine Liddell Hart's The Ghost of Napoleon. Ghost of Napoleon is one of those books that's been lost to history. Some of the ideas that Liddell Hart puts forward in the book continue to remain relevant today, as well as controversial. Liddell Hart's critique of Karl von Clausewitz and The Ghost of Napoleon is perhaps his most well-known and most controversial idea to come out of the book. In many cases, uh, what is perceived as disdain is just a, a conceptual disagreement about the importance of certain facets of armed conflict, but those opinions are written in such a way that they come across as very harsh, and then as a result, the Karl von Clausewitz fan club, which today has many members, in many cases take Liddell Hart's arguments out of context and put forward the idea that he just that he's against Clausewitz on principle, which is just not quite the case. The Ghost of Napoleon is more than just a critique of Clausewitz, however. To be sure, Liddell Hart examines the logic that underlines many of the uh, ideas that dominate military thinking uh, at at his time, uh, but have also carried forward into today. There's an interesting passage in the beginning of the book, and he writes, and I'm going to quote him here, Yet reflection should surely awaken us to the historical importance of those who have molded the minds of the men whose actions have molded history. And then he continues a little later on, they prepare the mind not only of the man who will eventually use their ideas, but of the men he will use. And so I think that's that's an important insight into what Elhart's thinking about, uh, how, how Clausewitz influenced the generals uh, that led the armies in the second or the first world war and how those ideas had a, a huge impact on the conduct of the war. And so it's important, this is part of the reason that it's important to understand theorists and what theorists are influencing what because uh, in many cases a theorist can get written off as something that's antiquated or not needed or pick any any term you want, but the influence of thought on thought, and using Liddell Hart's words again, the historical of importance of those who have molded the minds of the men whose actions have molded history. That idea in itself cannot be underestimated uh, in terms of its importance because the ideas of those who have molded the minds of the men who have molded history... Uh, can be directly seen in the conduct of how wars are fought both in the past, but then also today and likely in the future, right? So whoever the modern version of a Clausewitz is, whether that's a futurist like, uh, a futurist like August Cole or P.W. Stinger, and their ability to influence the mind of the people, uh, senior military leaders, government leaders now, who may not necessarily be at the top, but are mid-level folks, that eventually in 10 years or 15 years are at the top, that can have a huge effect on the conduct of war uh, in, in the future. And so it's important, this is why it's important to understand theory and study theory and think about uh, not only existing doctrines, but also those ideas of, of emerging thinkers that are coming along to challenge uh, the status quo and historical things that have been perceived as dogmatic. One of one of the Harts biggest complaints with the World War One generals was that they were continually in pursuit of decisive battle. They were battle-seeking in the Napoleonic sense and that they believed that battle, bringing the enemy into a, a sharp contested fight in which one side came out victorious, questions asked, was the key thing that they needed to do to unlock strategic victory. And so, as a result of that, he found that, in many cases, he being Liddell Hart, found that the World War One R- R- era generals were essentially, were essentially locked in this Clausewitzian mindset uh, that, that, that spoke to the importance of decisive battle, and this is another great line. I think this is this is actually one of my favorite lines that uh, Liddell Hart writes in this entire book, and probably one of my favorite Liddell Hart lines ever from anything he's written. He said, "Here, perhaps, they differed from the generals of the last century, intoxicated with the blood-red wine of Clausewitzian growth." And I think that that definition or that little. That phrase that he uses, the blood blood red wine of Clausewitzian growth, I think that's just terrific um, because it cuts to the bone by highlighting that the generals weren't so much interested in thinking, but in replicating Clausewitzian ideas and reflecting Napoleonic warfare's uh, most salient methods of battle. The so tied to the idea of battle was the idea of mobility. And this is, on a personal level, uh, as somebody that dabbles quite regularly with military theory, that I think mobility is important. Um, and I, I will rightfully say that I, I borrow that straight from Liddell Hart. Uh, one of the big things that he found, one of the big problems that he saw with World War One and the conduct of... Uh, The military battles or the the operations during the First World War was that there was no mobility. And so at the end of the war, him and him and J.F.C. Fuller, among others, uh, but they were the primary two. They they emphasized the importance of mobility to preventing battles of attrition like those of the First World War. And so mobility became one of the paramount things that they thought was lacking from the battlefield. During the First World War, that had to be restored um, to make battle again useful and not just some bludgeoning tool of attrition. When talking about battles and mobility, he says, "But even at great greater hindrance to battle in the 18th century was the incapacity of armies to paralyze their enemy their enemy's mobility. They lacked the means of making him stand and fight." If he disliked the prospect or deemed the situation unfavorable, he could too easily slip away and retire behind a fortified barrier. Thus, battles usually were by mutual consent. They could rarely be brought out, brought about unless both sides were willing, and this implied such equality that neither side was likely to risk battle. So the point there is interesting in that um while he does say that mobility played a huge part in preventing attritional battles from uh, dominating uh, the battlefield at the same time mobility would also allow uh, one state and their military to abscond from the battlefield uh preventing preventing their ability to be decisively engaged and so you almost have this catch-22 where mobility is both what you need but also what you need to prevent and so i think that this there's another key aspect of Liddell Hart that gets overlooked in a lot of the discussions uh, on him is this duality, this two sidedness to many of the arguments that he makes and it's not a it's not a hypocritical thing at all. It's that uh, for every action there's a counteraction, right? And so you wanna maintain you want to maintain your own mobility, yet at the same time you want to deny, deny the mobility of your opponent of the adversary. You don't want them to possess the ability to move freely about the battlefield. You want to restrict that or inhibit that. Yet, you, almost first order principle of war level you, you must do almost everything you can to maintain that battlefield mobility. And so, um, that aspect of things, mobility in itself, is one of the underlying aspects that Liddell Hart says was vitally important to uh, rebirth, to bring back into the military equation so that these massive battles of attrition in the future did not reoccur. The the idea of dislocation is also an extremely important uh, contribution that Liddell Hart makes to the study of military history. Dislocation is essentially uh, the idea of upsetting the, the balance of things. And so one can look at that in a wide variety of ways. On Dislocation, he says, In war, as in wrestling, the attempt to throw an opponent without losing his foothold and balance tends to self-exhaustion and stalemate. Stacks, he's referring to uh, Marshall de Stacks, turned his mind to the problem of upsetting the opponent's mental and physical balance of dislocating their plan and the organization of their forces. There's uh, different types of dislocation, right? So he says here specifically, dislocating uh, uh, an adversary's plan or his physical balance, uh, the organization of their forces. And so there's a couple of different aspects to dislocation as it relates to physicality of things. So there's temporal dislocation, which is causing a force to fight at a pace in which it is ill-disposed or not uh, optimized to do. And that can be making it fight quicker than it wants to fight. And in doing so, it exhausts resources at a rate that it can't keep up with. You could do the same, you could, uh, in the inverse, you could make it fight slower than what it wants to, which would also extend the amount of time that it would have to be in the field and then uh as a result spend more on resources which would potentially cause it to uh, exhaust its stocks okay and then you have your functional dislocation so making a force fight in a way that it is not well disposed so if a force is optimized for maneuver for instance and it wants to fight a maneuver fight. It wants to fight in the open. It wants to fight quickly. It wants to fight with uh, bold movements. If you're trying to functionally dislocate it, you're going to operate in a way that doesn't allow it does not allow it to do that. So you're going to cause it to fight in an urban area, or in some sort of wooded area, or in some sort of area full of waterways, and uh, And you're going to cause it to fight in ways that are not suited to what it has physically within its force structure and then you've got your positional dislocation which is somewhat similar to functional dislocation however this one is more focused on your position on the battlefield the idea with functional dislocation is to cause an adversary to fight in terrain for which it is ill disposed causing tanks to fight in wooded areas or in urban areas functionally dislocate or positionally dislocate those those forces because they're not built to do that. You know, generally speaking, tanks are built for, for movement and, and engaging at distance, but operating, forcing tanks to operate in an urban area or some sort of other area that inhibits their ability to engage with their main gun at max range is one way that you can positionally dislocate. And again, that's just an example. That's not the only way. Take any type of force, look at what it's built to do, and then say what kind of terrain would be the best to take away the advantages that that capability has. And, and that's essentially the idea of positional uh, dislocation. So you've got positional, functional, temporal, uh, dislocation, and then you've got your uh, your moral dislocation, which is causing an adversary to fight in a way that it does not want to fight, not from a uh, not from a physical standpoint, not from a tactic standpoint, but a way that essentially morally bankrupts it. There are a host of examples from history in which forces fought in ways that they were not necessarily psychologically or ethically okay with. Adele Hart also emphasizes the importance of distraction as a key component to dislocation. Adele Hart says that distraction is critical to dislocation because it helps um, create a wedge in the mind of an adversary. And so he says specifically, if in contrast, you take a line that offers an alternative objective, you set up a tug of war in his mind and stake rival claims upon his forces without the need of dividing your own forces. Distraction also seems to be lost to history. In the past, secondary fronts and secondary theaters of operations uh, were ways in which a force or a military or a state or whomever uh, might distract their opponent and draw away resources and forces from the primary theater of consideration. And so you also see this mentioned in uh, in alexander svetchen's book strategy and this is really where he uh Svechen introduces the split between uh, decisive operations which are those that directly work towards the uh, the accomplishment or the attainment of mission objectives and then attrition which he finds he being Svechin here finds as a an integral part of military operations because of distraction attrition according to svetchen allows a force to uh, draw down the forces of his opponent and the resources of his opponent and push his opponent towards exhaustion um, by introducing those multiple uh, those multiple fronts, those multiple points of contact uh, that distract, that pull away from the primary consideration. And so as you can see with distraction, that really plays well with the different types of of dislocation, positional, functional, temporal primarily. Uh, moral, not necessarily the case, but um, nonetheless, distraction uh, is key to unlocking the potential of of uh, dislocation, according to uh, Liddell Hart. Going back to that yin and yang idea that Liddell Hart uh, weaves through much of what he writes about, another important aspect that he incorporates in his writing is the idea of disorganization and organization, and essentially a... Um, force, a military, is always competing against those two ends of the, uh, of the spectrum. They're attempting to keep their own forces organized while attempting to disorganize those of their opponent. Creates a dynamic in which the force continually oscillates between that uh, those two ends of the pole, uh, disorganization and organization. And so to help with that, he says that uh, distraction is incredibly important. And Liddell Hart writes that the need for distraction to create the disorganization and demoralization necessary to paralyze the enemy effectively before attempting a decisive blow had become, had always been understood by the masters of the art of war. Liddell Hart points out that in order to disorganize and organize and maintain that balance the military commander had to ensure that they were using the uh, appropriate means of uh, distraction to help shape the battlefield. Transitioning back to Clausewitz, Liddell Hart also is one of the first people that I've seen to make a dedicated effort to, to pinpoint a change in Napoleonic warfare, not in the way that the wars were fought, per se but in a change in the ways that the wars were commanded. And by that, I mean, Liddell Hart speaks about the differences that developed between Bonaparte uh, in the early years of his career and the later years of his career. And he talks about how the um, general, general Bonaparte was uh, dashing and daring and full of gusto and you know quick to make decisions and quick to be on a horse and on the front and with his men however um later the emperor napoleon approached the conduct of warfare far differently the emperor napoleon uh relied on mass to a sig- significant degree and to a degree that the uh the general bonaparte did not in addition to that he was uh in many cases, uh, out of shape, unwilling to get for, go forward on to the, uh, to the front lines and to engage with his soldiers and inspire his soldiers. And uh, in many cases, not horse-bound, uh, but in, in fact, command post-bound or carriage-bound uh, to get around the battlefield. I thought that that dichotomy that he highlights there between the Emperor The Emperor Napoleon and the General Bonaparte, a fascinating distinction that helps if not explain uh, the differences in how uh, Bonaparte performed on the battlefield at least, uh, illuminates perhaps some reasons why there was a degree of difference between the two. And this is uh, an idea, you know, that's carried forward later and I, I noticed it also recently as I was reading Owen Connolly's uh, Blundering to Glory, Napoleon's Military Campaigns. And in the book, Connolly makes the same arguments that Liddell Hart makes regarding Bonaparte, almost uh, verbatim. Uh, In many cases, he speaks that uh, later in the wars, the the Napoleonic Wars, Bonaparte rarely comes to the front. Uh, He's often sick. He's remarried and um, living living the the high life of a married man and so he's got a significant amount of dad bod going on at this point and as a result can't get into some of his uniforms doesn't feel as comfortable in his uniform doesn't like to get in front of his men uh, in ill-fitting uniforms And so because of this, perhaps psychologically, he was also less interested in going forward and being seen by the men because he wasn't comfortable with the way that he looked, which I thought, you know, was an interesting, an interesting point. And again, Conley is not going deep into some sort of psychological evaluation, but just making some uh, conjecture based off, uh, you know, what was reported at the time, but. At the same time, Bonaparte's also sick, uh, perhaps already has the cancer, that, the stomach cancer that's, that kills him. Although Conley says that this is not necessarily likely because Bonaparte ends up living another, non, another nine years from the position at which he's writing about it. Uh, but nonetheless, it's still a, uh, an interesting point to note in that even that, you know, this commander of brilliance at one point earlier in his career. Perhaps has has read too much of his own of his own hype, believes his own hype, has uh, overinvested in one technological, or maybe even more, you know, technological advancement or ideological advancement, you know, mass being more than than uh, mobility, perhaps, and so completely restructures how he does uh, combat operations. And so, anyway, that's uh, an, another interesting point that Liddell Hart brings forward that you see repeated today. Again, not, not necessarily to a significant degree, but if you are looking, you will find that mentioned. Decisive point to the last thing about Liddell Hart and the Ghost of Napoleon that I, that I want to speak about today. Uh, this is really one of the One of the ideas that I find revolutionary, so I've always thought that this idea of decisiveness and the term decisive and all of its derivative forms is so overused in Western military thinking. And for the longest time, I thought I was the only person in the world that felt this way. You know whether it was decisive points or decisive operations or decisive force or decisive action or decisive whatever the the derivative term was. I I found it excessive and unhelpful, and so um, as I you know the first time I read this book, I hadn't an idea necessarily what it was about, and so I was reading, and I came across this passage. And I find it to be one of the, the most sane, uh, salient points in military thinking, perhaps, uh, out there, period. And so I'm going to read this part to you. Delhart says, A point only becomes decisive when its condition permits you to gain a decision there. So a point is only decisive if it's tied to a decision. A decision being something that is, uh, you know, commander or po- political leader makes a decision at that that point. Liddell Hart continues on this topic and says, for this to be possible, this being the a point being decisive, it must be a weak point relative to the force you bring against it. And the true art of war is to create that weakness or find that weakness. Further, a point only becomes decisive when its condition allows you to gain a decision there. And to reiterate, for this to be possible, it must be a weak point relative to the force you bring against it. And the real art of war is to ensure or to create that weakness. Harkening back to distraction, Liddell Hart says that distraction is one of the primary methods by which an adversary creates that weakness in their opponent or in the situation. He continues and asserts that mobility is one of the primary mechanisms to bring about distraction. Adele Hart says that mobility in fact is distraction's mainspring. And so I think that this is uh, perhaps one of the best lines in, uh, in military thinking period because it really shows how Western militaries have taken this idea of decisiveness and completely construed it to match what it was, what it is that they want from the term and not stayed true to what the term truly means. So he says a point only becomes decisive when its condition permits you to gain a decision there. So by virtue of that, a point only becomes decisive. That in itself means that there are no decisive points. In fact, it often means that only in hindsight can something be defined as a decisive point because if you knew that it was gonna gain you a decision ahead of time, you wouldn't bother with any of the other planning or uh, operations that go into uh, a military endeavor in general. But because you don't know ahead of time what is decisive And only after the fact that a point becomes decisive because you were able to gain a decision there. Do decisive points have any validity? I want to go backwards a little bit here too and talk again about uh, Liddell Hart's discussion on decisive points and weakness because I think it it is underappreciated in military thought today. So we're going to Uh, Go back a little bit and talk some more about um, some things that we discussed earlier in this podcast. According to Liddell Hart, in order to gain a decision, a point must be relatively weak to the force, so relationally speaking, to the force that is brought against it. And the real art of war is to ensure or create that weakness. And so, again, this goes back to forethought and deep thinking and deep planning and not just taking things as they, as they appear. In order to ensure or create that weakness, that weakness being bringing a superior force against an opponent at a certain spot requires foresight and forethought, and I hate to use existing terminology that's tied to Western military thinking, but uh, branch plans and sequels, we have to think in terms of time and space, over time and throughout space, and think about how actions are related to other actions and how a commander can build on an existing situation to generate a a cumulative effect and has an outsized impact on operations. I know we went backwards there a little bit, but I just, in, in reflecting, I found that part really powerful because I think it addresses a lot of the problems uh, that occur today. In many cases, you find um, you find leaders unwilling to press the issues and think forward and plan ahead and instead fall back on ideas like uh, waiting to the last possible moment to make decisions, which uh, if you're trying to generate weakness in an opponent outside of utilizing some sort of immediate uh, strike strategy... Uh, your, your 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 options to do so are probably quite limited. Thank you for joining Revolution of Military Affairs today. Hope you've enjoyed the discussion on Liddell Hart and his book The Ghost of Napoleon. Again, one of my uh, one of my favorite books of of uh, conflict theory, military theory. Quite the controversial book if you're interested in controversial reading uh pick it up it's it's actually quite hard to find the the copy i have i purchased from a used bookstore in london a couple years ago and it cost me a pretty hefty sum Uh, but it's worth the money and worth the investment versus the mental energy that goes into reading the book so again thank you for joining us today Uh, this is revolution of military affairs i'm your host amos fox we appreciate your time uh this is a one-man show for the time being so I appreciate you bearing with us as we work through uh, editing problems. And uh, join us next time on Revolution of Military Affairs.